Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Diana Glyer is an English professor at Azusa Pacific University in California. She's devoted much of her impressive academic and writing career to C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and the writers who surrounded them. She has deep insight not just into these writers' books, but into their lives and the ways they spurred each other on to create the work that has meant so much to so many of us. I recently read her book, Bandersnatch. That book has so much wisdom about collaboration and writers' groups and critique and encouragement that I knew I had to get Diana Glyer on the Habit Podcast. Uh, Diana Glyer, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast today. Thanks for making time for us. Hey, it's a pleasure. It's really an honor to be here. <laughs> um, I know, and I, I suspect a lot of the people who listen to this podcast um, are familiar, already know that, that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were friends. They know about the inklings in a general sense. I guess I should just speak for myself. Before I read your book, um, Bandersnatch, I guess I thought of myself as knowing about the inklings, and but but you, in that book, bring things. Uh, you, speci- you you tell specific details about the inklings and about the way they did their their writing together. They did life together in many ways. Um, they made me realize I didn't know as much as I thought I did about about the inklings. So uh, I'd love to hear you. I, I'm sure you are called upon very often to summarize what the what the whole Inklings thing uh, was. So can you just take a few minutes and, and tell us some, some things about who the Inklings were and, and what they did for each other and for us? Sure. So late in the 1920s, 1929, uh, C.S. Lewis and his friend J.R.R. Tolkien decided to make a very, very simple commitment. And that's that they enjoyed each other's company so much that they decided to get together for lunch one day a week. That simple. Two guys lunch one day a week, uh, heading over to the pub for a pint and a good conversation with a friend. And in December of 1929, that simple lunch commitment, simple lunch conversation shifted because J.R.R. Tolkien made a radical and dangerous decision to share some poetry that he had been working on with his good friend. Now, that's scary. I mean, Tolkien's an introvert. Uh, He is shy about the work he's been doing. And this is a poem that was very, very close to his heart. And he had been working on it for some time. But he happened to have a copy on him. And I sort of picture them at the end of this meeting together, Tolkien very, very reluctantly turning to his extroverted friend, uh, C.S. Lewis, and saying, I've been working on this little um, poem and I wonder if, uh, I wonder if, well, per- perhaps you'd, you'd take a look at it, you know? And uh, Lewis took it and read it. And uh, the next couple of times they got together, Lewis started bringing some of his poetry. And there were these exchanges of manuscripts in these Monday meetings. And they loved it so much that out of this habit, uh, through January, February, March, the next year, they started to invite other people to come with them. And the Inklings meetings began with this very simple, very ordinary kind of conversation, two guys getting together for lunch. It just doesn't get simpler than that. And uh, that evolved into sharing works in progress, 
very rough drafts of things that they were working on. Meetings shifted as a group grew from Monday mornings to Thursday nights, and they met in Lewis's rooms at Maudlin College. And so uh, I'm a college professor, but I don't live on my campus at Azusa Pacific University. But at, uh, at Oxford, they do. They the Dons have uh, usually a home away from campus, but they have rooms on campus where they live during the week or during term time. And so in that, Lewis had a large sitting room. And on a Thursday night, these men would gather, usually about nine o'clock at night. They were late night people, get together at nine, uh, 8.39. They called that after dinner. So if you look at the records, they say after dinner, we'd gather. I think that's seven o'clock, but not for them. For them, that's about <laughs> 8.30 or nine. And then they would read their works in progress out loud. Usually the roughest rough drafts penciled in the night before perhaps, uh, and then they would talk about the work in various ways. They'd usually stay up till one or two in the morning, and then they would wander home <laughs> from there. And they did this for about 15 years, 15, almost 20 years. There were 19 men who are considered members of the group. And like a lot of groups that last a long time, the membership of the group shifted because it was kind of an open um, uh, thing. So, uh, people would uh, kind of join the group for a season and then kind of rotate out. And that's part of the secret of their longevity is that openness to inviting new people in and to giving people the freedom to participate, not necessarily every single time, but as they are able. So a number of members of the groups came they would come maybe for a few times for a month or two, and then you wouldn't see them again for a year or two, and so on. So there's this openness, but there was a core, three or four, five people who would show up very faithfully uh, Thursday after Thursday, and they did this for quite a long time, for uh, 17 years. So we, you know, it, it very famously they met at the Burden, the the uh, Eagle Child Pub. Are you are you saying that it was just early on that they did that, and then later their meetings were were in Lewis's rooms? No, not at all. I'm saying there were actually two very distinct meetings of this group, and so the Thursday night meetings are the only group that the members called an inklings. So they didn't call themselves inklings, they called the meeting okay. an inkling. So we're going to have an inklings, or I went to an inklings. And that was always Thursday night. Thursday night was a closed group. And by that I mean, it was by invitation only. You couldn't wander in, you couldn't bring a friend uh, because you felt like it. Uh, mm -hmm. It was a closed group. And I think that that's a really important thing to keep in mind as we think about what makes a successful writer's group. Because in order for a writer's group to thrive, especially for one that lasts long term, you need for there to be a healthy dose of safety, some security, and some ritual or structure that makes you feel safe and stable enough that you can risk some daring ideas in the creative work that you're doing. So that was the Thursday group. The Thursday group was, def was the writer's group. But on Tuesdays, they met, Tuesday mornings, actually, morning into lunchtime, they met at the Eagle and Child, the Burden Baby Pub, uh, and there, that was an open meeting. So if you have been to the pub, you know that the rabbit room is that little space in there. Uh, it, in the olden days, before the pub was remodeled, that was a little bit remote, but still, people were coming and going. And various individuals would just drop in 
and that was conversation only. Women were part of that group. Students were part of that group. But that was not a writer's group. That was a conversation, a fellowship group, a building relationship group, and kicking around ideas in a very informal way. I think that was important to the friendships and also to the writing that the men produced. Uh, but, I, but it wasn't really an inkling. So some of the inklings also met faithfully for these Tuesday meetings. But that was a different thing. There is no record of any manuscripts ever being read at the Eagle and Child pub. Ah, okay. This is what I'm talking about, Dana. When I say we have this, uh, you know, this vague sense of what the Inklings were up to. I didn't, so they, did, they didn't call themselves the Inklings. They just called their meetings. And Inklings. Inklings. We're going to have an Inklings on Thursday. <laughs> All right. Um, and you said they met the... The Thursday night meetings went on for 19 or 20 years, is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. They started, I, I, I believe that the first uh, meeting of the Inklings was this brave step of Tolkien's in uh, 1929 to share his poetry, to shift the, the conversation from just talking about ideas and uh, administrative politics and books they were reading to actually reading each other's stuff and giving mm -hmm. detailed feedback. The last Inklings meeting was in 1949, and they just had a night when no one showed up, and that was the end of the group. It was very sort of unofficial and quiet. Uh, things had started to uh, um, lose a little bit of their vitality after one of the members, a guy named Charles Williams, died unexpectedly. And so he was a very, very lively and unusual member of the group. He wrote uh, what are sometimes described as supernatural thrillers, novels where the uh, relationship between the natural world and the supernatural world is very, very thin. Williams believed that both natural and supernatural worlds exist side by side. And every now and then we catch a glimpse of that supernatural world that is at any given moment all around us. Well, Charles Williams brought a, a, a particular personality. He was one of those kind of lively um, risk takers. Uh, he was a bit of an outlier in the group in some ways, not an academic, but someone who was well-traveled, uh, someone who preferred the city to the university or academic life. And he brought all of that to the group and that caused a certain kind of liveliness. Uh, and when he died, the group started to lose some of that and eventually um, resolved. A lot of times I'm asked about the end of the Inklings. Why did they end? Why didn't they just keep going? And in some ways, uh, I would say that's the wrong question. What's really remarkable is how long they lasted. So a typical writing group, if you study writing groups, whether that's in a school setting or the writing groups that are kind of emerge uh, among a groups of writers who commit to each other in a writing circle, usually groups like that last four, five, or six years. If mm -hmm. a group lasts eight years, that's a little bit unusual. That's, that's more than is typical. And the reason for that is something that, when you think about it, anyone can really relate to we go through different phases of life. We go through different stages in our family, in our work life. People move. A writing group that lasts for four, five, six years is a highly successful group. And the goal in putting a writing group together is not to last indefinitely, but to last as long as that group is fulfilling the needs of the participants. Mm -hmm. So 
have you been successful writing groups before, Diana? I, I have been in a number of successful writing groups, uh, but I think that when people are asking about writing groups, one of the things that I like to emphasize is that I think all writers need groups, but I don't think that all writers need writing groups. Ah. So when people ask me, uh, how do I start a writing group? I'm, I'm kind of out here solo. I really feel, I read your book. I'm really excited. Uh, I, I read in Bandersnatch about all of the different ways that a writing group can help and sustain my creative vision. I want to start a group. How do I get going? And the first question I want to ask is, are you sure you need a critique group? Because I'm not sure that every writer needs a critique group. And so... Just to, to broaden it out a little bit, to think about it, I think all writers need to get together with other writers because fundamentally writers get how hard it is to sustain productivity and interest and inspiration year after year, decade after decade. It's hard and we need each other. We need each other for encouragement. We need each other for challenge. We need a lot of different kinds of things that we can talk about but I don't know that a critique group is always the answer. So for example, uh, when I was working on Bandersnatch, uh, I really wanted to get a younger voice in that and a less academic voice. And so I created an ad hoc group. So that's one of the kinds of groups that I think is really helpful. And I gathered together some students and some recent graduates and we got together every week for about a year and a half and we read chunks out loud and we worked with the material. And that's an ad hoc group. Everybody was that was, all about your project? Diana, that was or? all about my project. Now, other um, groups split off from that. Mm -hmm. So when one member of that particular uh, group, we called ourselves Team Bandersnatch. And so some of the members of Team Bandersnatch said, uh, well, I'm working on a novel. Could we do an ad hoc group? just for the next few months while I'm trying to get my novel together. Or another, one, another uh, participant said, I'm finishing my master's thesis. Could two of you and then two of my other friends do, put together an ad hoc group just for the life of this project? Would you come alongside what I'm doing and would you help me just to get this one project done? Which is a great thing to do. Those are, by definition, short-term and very focused on the life of one project. But that's not the only kind. Uh, there are also, uh, another kind of group is a problem solving group. So for example, there's a group of theology profs at Azusa Pacific University. They get for, together for coffee twice a week and they do it, they schedule their time so that they're, these are the two mornings a week when they write. So you know that one of the secrets of being a productive writer is you schedule your writing time. And so they have been in this pattern, two mornings a week, they write all morning, and then they get together for a late coffee, late morning, and then they go back and they write for another hour or two. This has been their pattern for years. And what they do in that coffee time is critical to their success. Because you know how it is when you're sitting, you're working on a project, you're like, uh, it's not working. Oh, I can't make this paragraph behave. Uh, I can't figure out how to do this thing, right? And so you say, I'm going to give it up. I'm going to go have coffee with the guys. You mm -hmm. sit down and Steve turns to you and he says, so what are you working on this morning? And you say, well, I'm working on chapter eight. And he says to you, well, what's chapter eight about? And you say, well, what I'm trying to say in chapter eight is, and then it gushes forth 
Mm-hmm. beautifully, fully yeah. formed, everything that you've been. Now, why is that? Why is that you just spent three hours banging your head against your desk and couldn't say anything sensible, but when we're face-to-face, something happens. Now, there's a, a neurological reason for that. You're probably aware of it, that uh, when people meet face-to-face, that face-to-face connection actually uh, wakes up or, or turns on various aspects of your brain that are not connected or not, um, the on switch isn't, isn't moved. When we're on Zoom, for example, when we're talking on the telephone, when we're looking at our books or composing on our computers, God has hardwired us so that our brains are much more active. We have access to a larger percentage of our brain when we're face-to-face. And we know this from studies, particularly of infants and their caregivers, and the way that when caregivers and infants are face-to-face, there is neurological change that takes place, not only in the, in the infant, but also in the caregiver. So face-to-face is really important for us. We are hardwired for it. And that's part of the reason why when we get together with a person and try to explain to that person what we're trying to express, we have access to a far greater range of vocabulary, of interest. But the other thing is this, and that's that all writing is by nature transactional. So if you think about just how it feels, you think about the affect of it, When you are sitting there writing and trying to create text, you get the feeling that you're talking to yourself and you know what you mean. And so not so much really depends on what you say, Mm -hmm. but when you're looking eyeball to eyeball to a friend and you say, I'm trying to explain something about how Hugo Dyson was a key member of the group. And you say, huh? What? What do you mean by that? All of a sudden, I realize you don't know the same story that I do. And that awakens in me the language that I need in order to get that across. That's why those face-to-face meetings are so so important. So that's what a a problem-solving group is. Nobody's in, in these groups is actually reading each other's stuff. All they're doing is getting together regularly to talk and to ask questions and to express ideas and to clarify phrasing that yeah. helps them as they go back to their writing desk. That is so great, Dan. I love, I love those insights. You know, I, I talk about, um, I didn't invent this phrase. I can't remember who, where I got it from, but the, the curse of knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, so many of our writing problems, it's not because you're ignorant. It's because you know too much. Yeah. Right? You, yes. you, you know what you're saying, and so you don't have any idea that this sentence makes complete, no sense whatsoever because you, you already know what you're saying. Right, and that's and why so it's so hard. To- you, you feel, it feels like you must be some sort of idiot, but it's, it's not that you're an idiot. It's that you are too knowledgeable. Right, and that's why it's so hard for us to revise our own work because mm-hmm. when, we, when we read our own material, we don't read what we said we read what we meant. Yeah, right. Right? And so we need other people to come along and say, well, I don't know what you mean here, right? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the most helpful forms of critique. So if you are in in a critique setting, 
I think that for someone simply to say, I don't understand this, I don't know what you mean, or I sort of get it, but I don't quite grasp it. Can you tell me more? Or can you give me an example? And yeah. that causes us to externalize that those things that are internal knowledge for us. Uh, just real quick, just to talk about a couple of other kinds of groups or, or ways that groups can help each other. Uh, what are the ones that, that my students have found most helpful are what we call parallel play groups. So parallel play is a concept where people are together in the same place, but they're each working on their own thing. And I know an awful lot of writing groups, and this works, by the way, really well over uh, Zoom or online uh, formats. And you just say, I need a regular structure of writing. So every Monday and Wednesday from noon to four, that's my writing time. And you find other people who'll be like, yeah, that's my writing time too. And you just show up and you don't really talk or interact. You just have the people there and everybody's kind of working on their own thing. There are a number of uh, clubs and organizations I know who have started that kind of thing. And so what that does is it provides the accountability, but also that sense of companionship to know that I'm not the only one that's sitting there scratching my head. I'm not the only one that just deleted 500 words that I'd wor spent two weeks writing. You see that other people are involved in it, uh, and it, it, does, it does marvelous things. Uh, my students often get together for parallel play according to a weekly schedule. Everybody's studying their own thing or working on their own papers, but the companionship of being in the same space uh, is, is pretty important. I guess I would mention one other uh, kind of group and hey, that's the, before you do, Diana, yeah. can I ask you a quick question? When you oh, say yeah. it's good to do over Zoom, do you mean people are literally logging into Zoom and sitting there for four hours? Yes, I do. They can Absolutely. look up and see somebody else writing. That's right. And uh, if in the in the younger crowd, there are actually uh, people who vlog, and that's their vlog. Their whole vlog thing is that you can you can uh, watch somebody at a certain amount of time or certain uh, hours of the day, sitting and studying, and they, they just call it study group. You and one other person, oh, oh, in this case, a lot of other people kind of uh, logging on to watch someone study and to study along with them. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It is accountability and it is companionship. And those two things make a big, big difference for mm. our productivity. So if I can, I'll talk a little bit about my group. I have a group that's been meeting for over, over 20 years now, oh, wow. which is a pretty remarkable thing. It is not a critique group, uh, but it is definitely a writer's group. And we get together twice a month and have for more than 20 years now. And our group is a prayer group. And it is, um, it is probably the thing that has helped me more than anything else in my writing life. So we get together, unlike a general prayer group where you can pray about all the different things that might concern you, we get together, we share a meal together, we worship for a few moments, and then each person takes the prayer chair and shares specifically what are they working on now and what do they want God to do? How do they need God to intervene wherever they are in the process, whether that's getting the courage to send out a, a query letter to get published, whether that's, I just got an idea for a novel and I, I just don't know if I should undertake it or not. 
I submit to my prayer group when I get an invitation to do something like a podcast or a lecture. Uh-huh. And I say, should I do this? Is this something that will add value? Is this something that will make a difference? Because I don't want to waste time. I don't want to uh, do something just to tick a box, you know? You get to a point in life where you think, I really want to do things that I think will make a difference for folks, that will add value. And uh, my prayer group prays for all of these kinds of events. And so that group has been sustaining. We don't give each other advice. We don't read each other's stuff. Uh, in fact, advice is strictly forbidden. Uh, but what we do is that we, we function as resonators for the challenges that we have. I think one of the most powerful words in this whole field of writing groups is resonators. And a resonator is someone who fundamentally understands what it is you are attempting to do and commits themselves to companioning with you to help you get there. Yeah. And the, uh, the Inklings were tremendous resonators. Even in their critiques, they were able to say, I get what you're trying to do here. What you're trying to do is really good. Let me companion with you in all of the various ways I can. Let me support you in the work that you are trying to bring forth. Yeah, you know, one one of the uh, I've I've I tried in in the habit membership and other places where I have people gathering to give each other critique or or comment on one of those work. Um, you know, I've got a document where I try to to lay out some rules for that. And one of the rules is, and this is a rule that, that goes both ways, both whether you're receiving um, input or giving it, um, and that is. Your job is to help the other person um, uh, give voice to their vision. Um, it rarely is, would it ever be to change somebody's vision. And to the extent that you can, uh, what, as you're making comments, be, be thinking, you know, I'm not here to hijack anybody's vision. Um, and if I have something to say that might help that vision be a, a little more clear, great. Here it is. And by the same token, as you are trying to adjudicate what input to pay attention to and what to ignore, I think a lot of it is, is this person trying to, to, to get me to do something I'm not, I didn't set out to do? Or are they trying to help me do what I set out to do in the first place? Yeah, that's, that's really good. I think that that's part of the reason why the word resonators is such a rich way to look at it. I had uh, discovered that word and seen that word as a descriptor for the creative process, but it was a friend of mine after I'd given a lecture who helped me really understand what that is. Uh, he said, uh, do you know what a resonator actually is functionally? And I said, no. He said, a piano is a resonator and a violin is a resonator. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, look, the, the sound that the string of a violin makes is very soft uh-huh. and very limited. And it's the body of the violin that amplifies that sound and gives it its fullness and its resonance. It helps mm. it to become full grown and mature. It doesn't change yeah. the sound. It merely vibrates at the same frequency and adds the depth of dimension. And that's what we do for each other as writers, I think. Whether, whatever kind of writing group we have, we resonate for one another. And we have to be good listeners in order to do that. And yeah. simply to say, 
Can you tell me more about that? I don't quite get what you're saying. Can you clarify that for me? Can you give me another example? I'm not quite grasping. Uh, is this what you're trying to say? Those kinds of feedback are so much more helpful than I didn't like chapter two, or that <laughs> character makes me nuts, or these other kinds of, of criticisms, which are very, very different from the kind of critique. I like what you say about maintaining the author's own vision as opposed to imposing on the author a vision of your own. Uh, I think Resonators helps to capture that, but I also think the whole idea of being an author helps to capture that, don't you? That yeah. the same root word for authority is the word author. The author is an authority, and they're able to say, that's a really good idea, but that won't work for this project, you know? Yeah. So we learn how to listen. You're, you're exactly right that when it comes to giving one another the kind of feedback that we need, uh, we need to be both good givers of feedback, but also good listeners, good receivers. Yeah. And part of that being a good receiver is learning when that's a really good idea, but someone, for someone else, that's not really going to take me in the direction that I want to go. Yeah, that's the right answer to a different question. <laughs> That's right. Very yeah. good. Very good. Um, well, you know, I, I have said, I don't know how many times that I've never been in a successful writer's group, but that's not true. I mean, th the, from what you've just said, I realize that is not true. I've been, I, I'm in a wildly successful writer's group. I've just never been in a good, in, in a successful critique group. There you and go. So and I'm, I think I'm very blessed to have, writer friends who, um, who do, you know, who, who know what it means to, to write books and songs and, and bring th you know, things into the world. And, uh, and that makes a huge difference in my own work and my own approach to the, to the world. Quite, and that's a completely different thing from needing, I guess I've, I've, I've felt a little bit guilty is not the word, but weird about the fact that I've just never been in a, in a critique group that seemed to work. And you know, part of the problem yeah. is I've never been in a, I've never been sufficiently afraid of what the critique group was going to say to maybe get my work done for that week or whatever, you know. <laughs> um, but but this is this is really helpful to 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 have a different some different language. I, yes, I've been in a successful writers group. Good. I'm glad to hear that. And even when you think about the Inklings, we have uh, instances, for example, uh, Charles Williams didn't like things read out loud as much as C.S. Lewis did. So some of us are more auditory, right? And some of us are more visual in how we process a text. And so we have all kinds of uh, occasions where Tolkien, after he had read to the Inklings, would give those manuscript pages to his friend Charles Williams, and then they would meet, just the two of them, uh -huh. later in the week, usually at a pub called The Mitre, and Charles, having had the time to read and reflect on the manuscript, would chat with Tolkien about some of the details of that, the progress of the Lord of the Rings. And that was really important. That was a different form. But even the Inklings would get together sometimes for these ad hoc groups or these smaller groups or these different kinds of groups. Uh -huh. Each member of the group was a member of other kinds of groups as well, whether those were essay clubs or 
uh, debating societies or uh, other kinds of special interest groups. And so we tend to think that they put all of their attention just in this one Thursday meeting, but that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Before the Inklings, after the Inklings, most importantly, during the lifespan of the Inklings groups, they were constantly connecting with other writers outside as needed so that they could um, throw ideas around, get feedback on a specific kind of topic and so on. And so we need a much more fluid idea of what a group is. We think that a group starts with nine people and then <laughs> stays with those same nine relentlessly, you know, through the ages. That's not how it works. It's a much more permeable, flexible, and open kind of system. And uh, the bottom line is that writers must find ways to connect with others. We can't sustain the writing life alone. It's too hard and yeah. it's so discouraging and it's very time consuming. Among other things, we need other writers who uh, can model for us what to try or what to do. Yeah. And this was the effect of the Inklings on C.S. Lewis's brother, Warren Lewis. And I think that that's a really important thing. He joined the group from uh, almost the start, uh, in the very early years of the group, and was one of the most active members of the group during those years. But what's really fun is he didn't actually start writing until he'd been part of the group for quite a long time, five, six, seven years into it. It suddenly occurred to him, hanging around with all of these writers, hey, I could do that. Yeah. Look what they're doing. I could How do that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when he started writing and he published seven books and they're brilliant and they're that's brilliantly great. written. Uh, but he did it because he kind of hung around and watched and observed this process until he was ready to plunge in himself. Yeah. Okay. I've got to ask you, I, I, I got to ask you this. I, I know um, among, even in my, my group of writers, the, the habit membership, I have a lot of people in there who feel lonely, right? Who are, they're from, they live in Nebraska, you know, some small town in Nebraska or, you know, Manitoba. I mean, some, some small place where they feel like there's nobody like me. I don't know where to find her. I mean, you know, it, it, and for those people, I know the internet has been a boon in many ways to help them find people like, like them who have similar interests um, but, you know, you're talking about, that's nice that these people in Oxford got to hang out with, you know, you know Tolkien and then go to an essay club. And, and, it's, and I, was, I was even thinking about your, your theology professors, you know, meeting for coffee. Even, I mean, you know, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and there's plenty of, there are plenty of writers around. But if I were to write for two hours and then go get coffee, it takes me 15, 20 minutes to drive to the coffee place. You know, it's not like, this isn't like being on a, on a campus. So can you talk a little bit about, about some of these? Well, that's two different things. But let, let's start with the idea of people who feel like I've got nobody in my life who, who shares you know, my interests. I, I, I don't know where to even start finding people who like what I like. Sure. Um, you, you're right. It is a, a wonderful thing to be part of a university environment, and that does throw open lots of doors of opportunity. But I think that uh, that isn't the only way to, to do it. So for those who feel isolated, I would go back to sort of the beginning of what I expressed, and that's that the Inklings did not start as a critique group. 
They didn't start by the way that most of us would. We, the most of us would think, I got to get a group together. So I'm going to put on my Facebook and I'm going to put on my uh, Craigslist and everything I can. See how many people I can get together at the library. And we'll get 30 people at that first meeting. And you'll say, I'm going to, we're going to start a group. And you pray that there will only be so much attrition. So you still end up with a critical mass of maybe eight or 10 people who can like sustain this thing over the long haul. So we're going about it. That's going about it the wrong way. The inkling started because two guys decided to get together for lunch one day a week. And at the time, while they had a lot in common, they, they were very different personalities and neither one was an accomplished author. Neither one of them. They were failed authors, as a matter of fact, in lots of ways. They'd been writing all their lives, but they hadn't really, nothing they'd done had, had acted. They were just guys, you know. I, they didn't know they were C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, you know what I'm saying? They were just yeah. guys, and they enjoyed each other's company, and they found that they drew out from one another new things, interesting things. They enjoyed each other's company. So to that person who feels isolated, I'd say, can you find one other person who sort of gets what you do, uh, who energizes you. See, see here's the, the litmus test of a really good resonator is very, very simple. It's something I learned from my mentor, Don Murray. And he used to say, you want to find that person who after you've talked to them, you can't wait to get back to work. You can't yeah. wait to get back to work. So I do one-on-one -on -one critiques with my students, right? We, we do one-on-one -on -one, uh, for them in their classroom. And I, I really believe that I have failed unless the student leaves feeling like, you know what? I'm going to cut my next class because I cannot wait to get back and work <laughs> on this paper. Do, do you know what I mean? I'm not yeah. encouraging cutting class, but I want that kind of, oh, now I know what to try. Yeah. And I really can't wait to get back at it. That's what you're looking for is the person that makes you feel like that. And so I would say, try to find one other person, make a commitment to get together on a more or less regular basis. Try mm -hmm. to articulate what you need. Do you need prayer? Do you need parallel play? Do you need critique? Do you want to work on a project? What is that? What, what would that look like? Uh, in my prayer group, by the way, it's not all just writers. We also have musicians, we have visual artists, and others, because all of us who are involved in the artistic enterprise understand at a very visceral level how terrifying it is to get your work out there and how frustrating it is to have something in your heart and to have the physical manif manifestation of it not match, right? Mm. Uh, we know about discouragement. We know about loneliness and isolation. So really in our group, there's no difference between the painter and the person who writes musicals and the person working on their thesis and the person working on a novel. Yeah. Uh, we're, we all get the creative process. So even expanding a little bit, Getting together with others. I, I recommend that people start, if they want to go a little deeper in thinking about a group, that they find a book and read it together and talk about it. And that shifts from that awkwardness, hi, <laughs> what are we going to talk about, to let's talk about chapter four and five. And, and what that book is, I, a lot of groups have started because they read Bandersnatch. 
Mm. And uh, just read, can we just read this together and see if any of this uh, really would be something we would want to try? So you start small, start with two. Two is a magic number. Uh, a guy named uh, Joshua Wolf Shank has written a book called Powers of Two and notes in that historically how many great breakthroughs in science and technology and music start because two people start bouncing ideas back and forth and then they start inviting mm -hmm. other people who share the vision and the group grows from two. Two is a magic number. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend that people start uh, on that kind of a level. Is it, uh, is it fair to say that a resonator um, doesn't even have to be a person that themselves as an artist? In other words, you, you were talking about people who, who ask good questions, who, who are paying attention or curious. Um, I don't know that you, I mean, if indeed you live in a place where you, it's literally true that there's nobody else who's interested in, in you know, I, I don't know if that's literally true for anybody, but it, I know it feels true. I wonder if you can just, you know, if you have a friend who's a, who's a farmer, but is interested in what you're doing, I should think that would, that would scratch some of this itch. That would be fabulous, right? That would be fabulous. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, that's such a good starting place because then we start to realize I don't need everything from each individual. Yeah. Just one thing I get from that person. That person makes me excited because they ask good questions. That person makes me excited because they believe in me. That person makes me excited because they contradict everything I say and they make it necessary for me to raise yeah. the, the bar a little bit and to do a better job at what I do. So absolutely. Um, and then there's another person who's particularly good. I have one person in my world and he hates everything I do. And I always send him my academic articles before they go to press because I know he's going to rip them apart. But here's the, here's the power of that. Here's the thing that really makes that amazing is that since I know I'm going to send him that article, while I'm writing that article, I keep him in mind as one yeah. of my readers. Yeah. And I shift what I say because I know, ooh, if I say that, he's going to jump all over it. <laughs> or, oh, that's a phrase that's his pet peeve. Or, yeah. ooh, he's going to ask me where my evidence is, right? And he's going to say, I'm, I'm, this is too speculative. I know it because he always does. And that means <laughs> that even as I'm writing, I'm thinking about that one critic. He is invaluable to me. But the most important thing he does isn't the final marked up copy of my manuscript, although I treasure that. It's that it's changing yeah. how I'm thinking during my composing process. And that's worth its weight in gold. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And, you know, I, I when you spoke of, of people who make you want to go sit down and write um, or skip class, which I, I cannot... Uh, <laughs> Get behind that, Diana. All right, um, all right. Uh, we'll have to edit that part out before my dean <laughs> hears this uh, particular interview. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I know. I mean, I, I know people who are just—they're just good storytellers, and they think of themselves as being not creative. And I'm, and and when I when I talk to them, I think I want to go write some of this, some of what they said down, or in any case, I just want to go write something down. Well, Diana, we were running. Actually, we we ran out of time a, a while back, but this is just too much good stuff. 
Uh, but I have to ask you the question I always ask. Who are the writers who make you want to write, Diana? Uh, well, obviously, I have a lifelong fascination with Lewis and Tolkien, all aspects of their work, but not only yeah. that, all aspects of their example. They are role models to me yeah. of a life well lived. Uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, friend, Walter Hooper, said of C.S. Lewis that he was the most thoroughly converted man he had ever met. And mm -hmm. so, Lewis, for me, continues to be a uh, uh, an incredible example of me wanting to use all of my talents and to be thoroughly converted, to have no aspect of my interests, my day, my talents, my abilities uh, that isn't uh, an open invitation for the Lordship of Christ and uh, to be the hands and feet of Jesus uh, in, in this world. Uh, other writers that have been uh, tremendously important to me, I have to mention Anne Lamott's book, Bird by Bird. Because oh, I, think, I, I think what she does is she lays out a very practical way that writers can get their work done. Uh, yeah. The idea of the one-inch frame you may be familiar with, the idea yeah. of really, really bad first drafts. Those two keystones uh, change the, the life of every writer that I know. And, and I, she, she explains it so well. She's such a brilliant writer herself. I actually yeah. uh, cried when I read uh, her uh, autobiography, not because of the content of that, but because her sentences <laughs> are so beautiful. I thought, oh, look, she can make the English language do things yeah. that I, I am just in awe of. And then I would say, finally, uh, I had the privilege of studying with uh, a man named Don Murray. He was a professor at the University of New Hampshire, won a Pulitzer Prize in journalism. Hmm. And he wrote a book. It's out of print now, but oh my goodness, uh, you've got to find a copy. It's called The Craft of Revision. And okay. I've used, used that book for years uh, in classrooms with reluctant writers. Uh, it is largely about revising, but it's much more just about the writing life and about the writing process. I think sometimes when we're talking about writing, we focus way too much on the final product. We try to make mm -hmm. the product look a certain way. And we don't talk enough about that magical space in between when we first get an idea and we have a finished manuscript before us. I think that knowing what the target might look like is helpful but honestly, I don't think that that's where our focus should be. It should be on today. What are the next steps that I can take to move this project along just a little bit further? And if we keep that mindset, then we keep producing mm -hmm. uh, regularly and on a daily basis. To me, it's always been astonishing uh, to see how if I will just say every day in terms of my writing task, what's the next action that I can take to move this project along just a little bit, how, how much gets done at the end of a year or two years or, or five years. Mm -hmm. So Don Murray's book, The Craft of Revision, helped me a lot in some of the same ways that Anne Lamott does, talking about writing process, but also because he too is a good writer, very different style from Lamott's. Uh, I am constantly inspired by him and uh, by his example.
Yeah. Well, great. I have been very encouraged by the things you've had to say about, about writing groups and friendships among writers. And so thank you for being here. And I hope we can do this again. Let's uh, plan for a follow-up sometime at your convenience. And thank you so much for the chance. It's fun to talk about these important ideas. Thanks, Diana. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.